You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, we are concluding our series through this book in the Bible, which we have called When the Righteous Suffer. The book of Job is 42 chapters long, and as we have seen throughout this series, most of it consists in a very long debate. Job debates with his friends, and Job debates with God. And the subject of the debate has been, why has Job suffered? Why did he lose all 10 of his children? Why did he lose his wealth and his health? Why does it seem, most importantly, that he has lost the very friendship of God? His friends respond in the context of this, de- of this debate by asserting that Job must have done horrible things to deserve this fate. He must have exploited the poor He must have lived selfishly, self-indulgently. He must have ignored the weak. His children, likewise, must have been party-goers and and just living for themselves and for pleasure. They, They deserved it when they all were crushed to death under the collapsing walls of the oldest brother's home. Job must have been guilty because in the minds of his friends, only the wicked truly suffer like this. If you suffer... It really just points to the fact that you are a great sinner and that you've done something to deserve this. Now, in case we think that that's cruel and harsh and that we would never think that, we we do the same thing whenever we hear of someone else's calamity and we start thinking in our minds, in the hidden place of our hearts, that, oh, he must have had some secret sins, The adult child of a respected Christian family ends up leaving the faith, and we think, oh, his parents must have done something horrible in the home. We are really not that different from Job's friends because this kind of thinking infuses human nature. We live under the assumption that if you do everything right, you do it the right way, everything's going to turn out the way you want. You're going to get everything that you desire. And that's what Job believed as well. So when Job suffered immensely, he struggled to make sense of it. I mean, he he knows in the integrity of his heart that he is innocent, and he's not guilty of any of the things that his friends are accusing him of. His conscience is clean before the Lord. And so he defends himself. He asserts his innocence, and he cries out to God for answers. But when God finally speaks, he doesn't tell Job what he's waiting to hear. God doesn't settle the debate once and for all. Instead, God proclaims himself. He proclaims his wisdom, his power, his might, his sovereignty, because Job isn't a book of philosophy that leads to answers. Job is a book of theology that leads to worship. The book of Job raises the issues of suffering, grief, and justice, and and a lot of it is informative and instructive in how we think about these things, but it is ultimately concerned about something far more important and transcendent, 
which is the character and the nature of God himself. And that is important because how we read something informs what we take away from it. If we read cookbooks for entertainment, we're likely not going to be very impressed. And if you read the book of Job expecting answers to the question, why, you're likely going to be disappointed because you will miss the fact that it is ultimately about answering the question, who? Who is God? What is he like? And is he truly worthy of our trust? God has shown us that he is indeed worthy of trust. And today, in these final verses in the book of Job, he gives us additional reasons to trust him. In the previous four chapters, God has revealed himself as the God who reigns. And today, he reveals himself as the God who restores. That is the title of this sermon. It is the God who restores. We're going to divide our text into three points Today, first, God restores his name. Second, God restores his servant. And third, God restores our loss. Now, if you're reading from a physical Bible, you may have noticed that beginning in verse 7, the text of Scripture is arranged differently. It's back in paragraph form after it was uh, arranged in short, single, indented lines over the past Uh, most of the rest of the book of Job. And this reflects the fact that the author is back to writing not in poetry, but in prose. When, When the text is indented, it is in poetry, and when it's in paragraph form, it is back in prose. Most of the book is written in the soaring emotional language of poetry. But these verses are back to the matter of fact, grounded language of prose which is something that we actually haven't seen since the first two chapters of Job. This transition from poetry to prose reflects a change in pace as the narrative finally settles down. It starts moving again. It is more about facts than about feelings. And and that is because we are meant to pause and see God at work. God is at work setting everything right again. He's like a king who's been away in a far country, returning to his suffering kingdom and establishing justice and order once more. And his first order of business is to restore his name. It's to restore his own name. He does that by addressing Eliphaz, the elder statesman of Job's three friends who have been debating with him. God's response to Eliphaz is not quite what Eliphaz was expecting. Look at verse seven. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You remember from Eliphaz's three speeches, if he had any expectations of God's anger, it was that God's anger was directed at Job. But he couldn't have been more wrong because he was actually the subject of God's anger. Verse 7 describes God's anger as burning against him and his two friends. It has been kindled like a fire and is threatening to consume him. Why? It's not because of what the three friends have said about Job though many of those things have been quite insensitive and horrible, 
No, it's because of what they have said about God. What provokes God to anger is, is he says, you have not spoken of me what is right. You have not spoken of me what is right. God cares deeply about the, the holiness of his own name. He cares deeply about what we say about him because our words represent who he is to the listening world. God reveals himself as one who will not be misrepresented. He will not have false things said about him. He is so zealous about this that it is enshrined in the Ten Commandments. We know it as the Third Commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. We often think that that commandment only implies that we must not use God's name as a curse word in it, though it certainly includes that, it includes so much more than that. If you read the old catechisms, the Heidelberg or the new one, the New City Catechism, which my, my family's going through in our family supper times, it says that, that obeying the third commandment means treating God's name with fear and reverence. And we fail to do that whenever we say things about God that are not true about how he has revealed himself to be. God is passionate about the holiness of his own name because his name represents his character. When Moses asked to see God's glory, do you remember that? On Mount Sinai, he says, Lord, please show me your glory. Let me see the beauty and perfection of your attributes and your character. Let me see the splendor of your holiness. What does it say? Exodus chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed this this majestic description of his beauty and excellence and character. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. My friends, we do not have to speculate about who God is and what he is like. The Lord has proclaimed his name. He has revealed his character and nature. He proclaimed it to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he has proclaimed it to us in his word. And now we must be careful to say what is true about God as he's revealed himself to be in his word. Now the question is, what did the friends say about God that was not right? How did they take the name of the Lord in vain? After all, they've said many things about God that were correct, that were right. They have upheld God as holy, as righteous, as wise, and as just. They even believe in God's forgiveness. They have encouraged Job to repent so that God would restore him. So, why is God angry with them? I believe the answer is captured in Eliphaz's first speech. One of the first things that the three friends say as represented by Eliphaz, and and these lines represent really the, the, the sum total, the thrust of what all three friends were saying to Job. In chapter four, Eliphaz said this, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? 
Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Eliphaz is saying this, the innocent do not suffer like you have, Job. Only those who are truly wicked, only those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You, you get what you deserve. You live wrongly, you, live, you, you, you get wrong from God. And that means that there is no such thing as innocent suffering. The innocent do not suffer like Job has. There is no such thing as people getting something that they do not deserve. If your children die, you get sick, you lose all your wealth, according to the friends, it's because you deserved it. But God says that's not true. In fact, that very idea provokes him to anger because it undermines the gospel. And the gospel is the full revelation of the name and character of God. For the gospel to be true, listen, in order for the good news of the forgiveness of sins to be true, an innocent man must suffer. Jesus Christ had to receive what he didn't deserve. He had to die, though he deserved to live. He had to be condemned, though he deserved to be justified. And Jesus did all that so that we wouldn't receive what we deserve. The the gospel is all about Christ receiving undeserved wrath so that we could receive undeserved grace. It is about the innocent one being pronounced guilty so that guilty ones could be pronounced innocent. That is what God is like. That goes to the heart of the very nature and character of God himself. He is the God who forgives iniquity. Both his mercy and his justice are satisfied at the cross of Christ. Not one at the expense of the other, but both fulfilled as Christ took what we deserved so that we could receive what he deserved. There is really nothing more antithetical to the gospel than the idea that people always get what they deserve from God. That is why God was so angry with his friends. They had completely represented the heart of God and taken his name in vain. So what does God do? What does God do in response to them misrepresenting him? Does he then turn and give them what they deserve? Does he consume them in the wrath that they have earned? No. Instead, he shows them the truth and beauty of his mercy by not giving them what they deserve. Look at verse eight. The Lord says to Eliphaz, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you For I will accept his prayer, and listen to this, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. God instructs Job to pray for them so that he would not deal with them according to their folly. He would not give them what they deserve. They deserve wrath. But God gives them mercy. 
by the atoning blood of this sacrifice and by the mediating work of God's servant Job, God decides to pardon them. And verse nine says, so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And so what we see is that in this simple act, in these short verses, God has not only restored his name, but he has restored the three friends. He upholds his justice through sacrifice. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no atonement except by the blood of a sacrifice. And he upholds his mercy through their forgiveness. The friends may not have understood God as being merciful, God as as sparing, deserving sinners from their deserved wrath when they first came to Job. They didn't understand it, but they do now by personal experience. They have tasted God's mercy for themselves and they receive it with gratitude We see the same mercy shown to Job as we turn to our second point, God restores his servant. God refers to Job as his servant three times, once in verse seven and twice in verse eight. This is the title that God used for Job at the beginning of the book in chapter one and chapter two. Do you remember what God said to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. To be called a servant of God is a title of immense dignity and honor because it it confirms that Job was the authorized representative and spokesperson to act on God's behalf. Unlike the three friends, God commends his servant Job as having spoken what is right. This is repeated once in verse seven and again in verse eight. He says to Eliphaz, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, if you've been following this series, you should be rightly puzzled by what God says there because Job has said things about God that have not been right. Let me give you a few examples. Job has said that God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Not true. Job has accused God of hating him. Not true. Job has said that God doesn't forgive sin, doesn't offer any hope, and doesn't do what is just. All of that is not true. And yet God says that what Job has spoken of him is right. How could that be? Well, it's because Job has already repented of the sinful things that he has said about God. There was no need for him to to repent of sin that led to his suffering, but he did need to repent of the sin that came out of his suffering. He has said some sinful things about God, and God has confronted him. Do you remember in the earlier chapters? Remember what God said. God challenged Job out of the whirlwind, and he asked, who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Job, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, where where are you when the mountain goats give birth? When, When the donkeys prance in the fields and the wild ox stands untamed by men? Where are you 
when the ostrich, the silly ostrich, lays its eggs in the sand where they can be trampled and then runs away laughing from the horse and his rider. Where, where were you before mighty behemoth, invincible, indestructible, untamable? Where, where were you when, when Leviathan lurks in the seas with impenetrable armor, untamable by man? God challenges Job and asks, do you know these things? Can you tame what I have created? Do you know their ways? Will they obey your commands? In response, Job can only lay his hand on his mouth in silence before he proclaims that I have uttered what I did not understand. And he repents in dust and ashes. God can say that Job has spoken what is right because God has canceled what was wrong. For those who repent and believe, the good news is that God does not count our iniquities against us. There is forgiveness for the repentant sinner. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us so that only what is true and good and right remains. This is how God wants Job to be remembered. That Job was a man who spoke what was right about God. And we know that not only from this book, but from what the New Testament says about Job. In the only reference to Job in the New Testament, in James chapter five, the apostle James writes this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you see the legacy that Job has left by the grace of God? That Job's legacy is steadfastness. That that is how God wants us to remember Job. It's just like with David. David, we know, did horrible things. He sinned by committing murder and adultery. His family fell apart after his infidelity. And yet, the apostles tell us in the book of Acts that he was still a man after God's own heart. God does not treat us the way that we deserve. And he did not treat Job the way that he deserved. Job is to be known as the steadfast one, despite the fact that he cursed the day of his birth and wished that he never lived. Despite the fact that he questioned God's justice and accused God of wrongdoing. Despite the fact that he spent days upon days grieving and lamenting and languishing on the ash heap at the town dump. All that matters is that he repented of his sin and he is called steadfast by God. Now this steadfast servant is now given the most holy task of all. He is called to foreshadow Christ himself. He is called to foreshadow Christ himself. When, when God calls him to intercede for his friends, he calls him to become the very thing that he longed for. He, he longed for a mediator. Do you remember, interspersed throughout the book of Job, Job longs for an arbiter, 
one who will lay his hand on God and man and bring them together. He, he longed for a witness in heaven who would speak on his behalf and declare that he is innocent. He longed for a redeemer who lives so that after his skin has been destroyed, yet in his flesh he shall see God. And now God tells him, Job, there is a redeemer. There is a redeemer who lives and I want you to point my people to him. Christopher Ashe writes, the one who longed for a mediator becomes the mediator and foreshadows the only mediator between God and people, the man Christ Jesus. My friends, if you are here today and you do not know this mediator, if you presume that God would forgive you despite all that you have done purely because you have a good heart or because you've said sorry. And God says, you cannot do that. You need a mediator. You need one who will stand before God on your behalf and declare that you are righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. None of us can approach God on the basis of our own merits. Because listen, we, we are just like the three friends. We are more like the three friends than we are like Job. We have all taken the name of the Lord in vain. Whether because you say that God doesn't exist, or because you say that God is not good, or because you say that God could never forgive you of your sin, or he will always forgive you of your sin no matter how you live. Those are all ways of taking God's name in vain. The only salvation for you is to plead Christ. Is to plead Christ. It's to trust in his merits, his righteousness, his atoning death on the cross for your sins. If you don't have Christ, then God's anger burns against you because of what you have said about him. And that anger will threaten to consume you and will consume you in everlasting punishment unless you hide in Christ. You find your refuge in him. And all are welcome in the refuge of Christ. All that is required is faith and repentance to turn away from your sin and to believe. And if you do, and God will forgive you, he will restore you, and he will call you his beloved servant and child, both now and forevermore. This leads to our final point. I'm gonna read the final verses of this wonderful book, verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. 
and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. My friends, this is a picture of paradise. Is this not how you want your life to unfold? All that God had taken, he now restores. Not only that, he pours out more upon Job. He gives him greater blessings in quantity and measure. He has twice as many animals as before. And he owns so much land that he can give all 10 of his children, including his three daughters, their own share of the inheritance. His daughters are so beautiful that that their beauty is renowned in the land. And we are given their names. Perhaps to root this narrative in history so that the original readers would say, hey, we we know their family. Job was a real man. He really lived. He really did suffer. God really did speak to him. It may also be because those names reflect beautiful things. Jemima means dove. Keziah means cassia, which is a type of fragrant cinnamon plant. And Karen Hapuk can be loosely translated as eye makeup. Job is blessed. He is blessed. This, this man who was so ugly and attractive because of the boils that covered him from head to feet, now has daughters whose beauty is renowned in all the land. He is blessed in his family. He is blessed materially. He is blessed relationally. And unlike his three friends who who came originally to comfort him but became miserable comforters, Job now has all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. And why? Why did they comfort him? Was it because of what evil men had brought into his life? Because of what Satan had brought into his life? No. They comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Listen, we know that the scriptures teach that the Lord is not responsible for evil. He does not sin, nor is he tempted to sin. But the Bible teaches that God governs evil in such a way that it can accurately say that the Lord brought evil upon him. It was the Lord who gave, as Job said in chapter 1, and it was the Lord who was taken away. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But God is so merciful, and God is so kind that he ensures that the saying does not end there. It does not end with the Lord has taken away. It it, it ends with the Lord gave, the Lord took away, and the Lord gave and gave and gave beyond measure for eternity, beyond what we could ever ask or think. My friends, this is a picture of paradise, but it is not the ultimate paradise. It is not the greatest end that we could desire. This is not the fulfillment of our dreams because at the end of the day, Job dies. Job dies. And what what else happens? His friends have to come and comfort him because he's still grieving the loss of what God has taken from him. This, this, This is not the ultimate paradise. No, it only points us to the true everlasting 
ultimate paradise when we stand in God's presence forever. Some of us, yes, we will find some measure of restoration in this life, but ultimate restoration must await the life to come. You remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter reminded Jesus of all the things that he and the apostles had lost as they followed Jesus. Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is Jesus taking the reality that awaited Job and saying, that awaits all who follow me. If you are a Christian, this is what awaits you. An eternity of receiving a hundredfold of what you have lost. Just as the Lord has given and taken away, the Lord will give and give and give. And and no gift that he pours out into your life will be more precious than the gift of himself. God not only restored Job's fortunes, God restored his friendship with God. Psalm 84 says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day in the presence of God is better than a thousand days in the greatest earthly paradise that you can imagine. And if you are a Christian, then you do not only own a single day like that or a handful of days like that, but an everlasting eternity of days like that, where every single day is better than a thousand elsewhere. The infinite God will pour out his infinite love for you in your finally sinless heart. Better days are coming, my friends. Better days are coming because we serve and worship a God who restores. A God who restores what he has taken. What we have lost, he will restore it all. I mean, this pandemic has been hard. We have lost many things. We have lost freedoms. We have lost relationships. Some of us have lost health. Some of us have lost loved ones. We have lost beyond recent history. But Job reminds us that better days are coming. It is only a matter of time before God restores the fortunes of his people. And our latter days are more blessed than the beginning About 20 years ago, John Piper wrote a poem about the book of Job that is stuck with me over the years. In fact, a few years ago, we as a church, we were still meeting at our old location, watched the short film that was based on this poem. My favorite part of this poem is the last page. I'm going to end this book and this series with John Piper's words. Behold the mercy of our king who takes from death its bitter sting and by his blood and often ours brings triumph out of of hostile powers and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. When he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart. 
when God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Let's pray. Father, how we wait and long for that day when your rod becomes the tender kiss of God and we see what you are accomplishing in our lives. And more importantly, we see how you revealed yourself to be a God worthy of our trust and worship through our afflictions. And we pray that these truths about who you are would put steel in our souls to endure through the hardest trials that you have ordained in our lives. We praise you and worship you that you are the sovereign God of all, even Leviathan, even Behemoth. They listen to you. They obey your commands and we have nothing to be afraid of. Help us, O Lord, to trust you, to worship you, to be like Job at the end of the day, steadfast to the very end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.